This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am here with Karen Mondebach. Did I pronounce your name correctly? I just asked you if I was pronouncing it correctly. It's it's like Mandebach. Mandebach. If, right. if you're from the Midwest. I've already screwed up the intro. This is why I'm not a professional media person. I only play one on <laughs> podcasting. Karen worked on, and in some cases helped create, some of the biggest hits in TV's history. Cosby Show, Roseanne, Third Rock from the Sun, That 70s Show. And now in an era where hit TV shows are very, very hard to come by, she's got another one. She's the woman behind Peaky Blinders, which just finished its sixth and final season. It's one of the biggest shows on Netflix and that global audience. And unlike other hit shows these days, this one is not owned by the network that distributes it. Karen owns it. Welcome, Karen. Hey, Peter. Thanks. Good to be with you. I've summed up your entire life. Anything left to talk about? Uh, Nurse Jackie. Okay. Oh, Nurse Jackie, we can mention that too. Um, Karen, you've got a wealth of info about the history of TV because you were there for a lot of it. But I want to talk about the present, first of all. A lot of Mm -hmm. people watch Peaky Blinders, like I just said. But for those who don't watch it, what is it and why should they watch it? Peaky Blinders, first and foremost, is a show about family and about aspiration and about class and about race, I suppose, uh, in America and about... I guess one of the best quotes is, I'm just the best example of what a working class man can hope to achieve. So that rings true with a whole bunch of people, the big global audience. Uh, It's about a man and his family and the situation he's in, in the case of Peaky Blinders, uh, in Birmingham, England, between the wars. So historical gangster drama in the UK in between World War I and World War II. Yeah, but the resonance is it's it's more popular outside of the UK than it is inside the UK. But people have taken it to heart such that there's a lot of depth of love for it. It isn't just something they like. If they like it, they love it. And the reason is because they really, really relate to all of the characters and the family dynamics. And it's, you know, as ever, when anything's a hit, it's about head, heart and balls. So they relate to the romance, too. Yeah, Killian Murphy is the star, but there's other other esteemed folks. Tom Hardy is in it. Definitely something that I like to watch with subtitles because there's a lot of yeah, deep, deep right. accent work there going on. Um, you, you reached out to me a little while back, and as best as I can tell, you said this this show should get more love than it's getting, but it's getting a ton of love. You know, Netflix sends out weekly updates saying, here's our most popular shows, and this is one of their most popular shows. 30.5 million people are watching it uh, on a given week. It's top 10 in 55 of Netflix's countries. Uh, this should be a victory lap for you. Um, are, are you happy with the success? You should be. I'm wildly happy. Don't mistake me for someone who isn't happy. Thanks to Netflix and thanks to BBC for supporting us, because at the beginning, we weren't a hit. And it was the audience and it was the rise of social media at the exact right time for me. Otherwise, it might not have been so well known outside of uh, the UK. It's been it's been a joy. Things just if, it, if they had to break, they broke my way. But the thing is, uh, it's a brand. And so you want to you want to make sure that it's loved over time, much like not that I'm comparing us to Star Wars, but, you know, much like 
a great brand that started with the family and explored various forms of the human experience. So you've, you've finished the run, the sixth season, the sixth and final season is done. Do you imagine this becomes movies? Do you imagine there are spinoff shows? Is there, is there other ways to exploit this thing that you own that is a bona fide success? I imagine it all. And the reason is because it's so beloved. So right now, for example, in Camden Yard in, in London, there's an immersive theater show. Fantastic. So whether you I mean, nowadays, kids here dress up uh, as Peaky Blinders for their bar mitzvah. I'm not even kidding. It's a very, it's a lot of cosplay, a lot of like, there are pubs here with Peaky Blinders themed nights all over. Uh, and they they want to be part of it. And the immersive theater thing is fantastic. I guess it had been uh, for the pandemic, a, a trade-off, you know, just you can love it from afar. Now you can love it in person with actors who are improvising with you as Peaky Blinders. So it's a big, thrilling new thing. I think. And then also, why wouldn't we explore Web3? Of course. Why wouldn't we, too? Of course, we'll do Peaky Blinder spinoffs and Peaky Blinder movie if we can, if anybody wants to buy it. But our feeling is that because it's so beloved, it should just be shared in any form. I mean, I can send you a Monopoly game that says Peaky Blinders and, or some Bushmills if you want. But, <laughs> you know, it's a very big deal and, and you take it to heart. And and like like I said, you own this, and you're the person who gets to benefit from the exploitation of this. And I don't mean that in the for the mo- for the most part, yeah, for the most part. Obviously, I have lots of partners that I share things happily with. Mm-hmm. And uh, but yes, I curate and control the brand. If I'm watching Netflix and I don't listen to this podcast and I don't pay attention to the the vicissitudes of of media business, I would not know that you own this and you and your partners mm-hmm. own this. Netflix describes it as a Netflix original, so oh, it's a Netflix show. And I know that Netflix and everyone else would like to own the shows they distribute. And that's been something they've all been mm-hmm. aspiring to do for some time. How did you come to own this show and get it onto Netflix? Well, back to history, I was part of a company, Carsey Werner, latterly Carsey Werner Mandebach, where we owned our stuff. So I was used to the culture, which was a bit of a radical departure. But at the time, uh, you play the hand you're dealt as an entrepreneur. And then in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was impossible to own your own stuff because of vertical integration. So basically, indies were run out of town. Yeah, we can go into some of that history in a little bit. So, how, But how did you come to find this show? I moved to England. And- <laughs> the first thing I did was pick up, move to England, find the right people to work with, all of whom I'm still with and I can't say enough about, start a company, you know, get some money, invest in stuff, and uh, tell people you're there. Uh, and I'd already had a little bit of experience with Britain. I went to school here for a while and also had, I don't know, friends in the comedy business back then. And I just felt I felt confident that I could start a business. Little did I know that someone like Steve Knight would walk in the door and pitch me a TV show. That was just luck. So Steve Knight is the, the creator of the show. He brings you an idea, says, I would like to make this historical gangster drama. Yeah. You say, great, I'm going to help finance it and find other people mm-hmm. to put money together. At that point, what is your thought about where that show is going to run? Is that meant for a BBC audience? Do you imagine um, we're going to sell this to Netflix one day? Yeah, we we um, sold it to BBC. Uh, actually, in a hilarious turn of events, the lady who bought it, a lovely woman named Dan Mensa, uh, bought it for BBC, then uh, left uh, BBC the next day to go to Sky. So the very person who bought it left, but still uh, the BBC stalwart and wonderful didn't have enough money. So I then had to go to find a distributor. 
Little did I know uh, that following year, uh, there was going to be a tax credit, 20%. I really didn't even need to have a distributor, but I got one and the, the financing was there. And I'm, uh, you know, lucky that BBC supported. And then latterly, uh, Netflix came aboard. But I offered it to HBO. They said no. And then Netflix at the time had really not been doing much, but they said yes. So we were thankful. You know, Netflix has been, you know, the history of Netflix was them taking other people's shows, licensing it, and then eventually getting into their own licensing. In the middle of that, they started pushing to say, all right, if we're going to license this show, we want complete global distribution rights. We want to basically own the thing top to bottom. Um, When you sold it to them, was there a push to sort of were they trying to claim as many rights as they could? Did they want to buy the thing outright? Did you need to sort of dig in your heels and say, no, this is mine and I'm going to sell it to you on my terms? I was lucky because I sold the uh, original show to the BBC. Mm-hmm. Then uh, they couldn't have asked for uh, total global rights. And they were wonderful about it. They really just all along the way, I have to call up be the only person around who just says they were, uh, though they said it was a Netflix original and they hadn't actually ever read a script. Uh, they gave us the money and didn't interfere and promoted us to the extent that they were able at the time. And uh, we didn't even know at that time that they would take data. We, it was a new relationship for everybody, but they they were good to us and they were good to BBC. So it's uh, fortunate all around. The, my timing was great. The first season went up when? Remind us of when. I don't know. Was it 2013? I think. Okay. So this is right when Netflix is doing... They're about. They're starting to do original content, and they're a couple years away from being a global streaming company. When does it kick in for you? When do you go? Oh, we are something that people are responding to globally. This is something that is breaking out. This is something that people are streaming around the world. When does that? When do you feel that? Season four. So I don't remember what year that was, but we were originally on BBC Two the nuances of which uh, compared to BBC One, I can barely understand myself, much less explain. So when BBC One realized that it was uh, getting such terrific traction, they took it from BBC Two and uh, claimed it as their own, gave us a bit more money. By the way, we made it for such little money relative to anything else Netflix has. And BBC doesn't have that kind of money. Everyone stretched and uh, everyone, I, you know, like I said, you know, you can have bad relationships and good ones and I've had good ones. I love a partner that's good, you know? And and what does it feel like when when that kicks in? And how does that compare to having a giant hit on broadcast TV in the 80s and 90s when there are three or four networks, but it's it's US versus global? What is can you does it can you feel the difference? You can totally feel the difference because you can see the love on social media. And you can hear the love when when you're walking down the street here and you see a pub, you know, that is filled with people dressed as Peaky Blinders. A hit used to be defined as, well, a whole bunch of money comes your way. The reason why you want an Oscar is because there's an Oscar bump. You know, you make more money. But a hit that deeply felt, I don't know if you are aware, but back in the day, the Cosby show had a 90 share of the audience and helped to end apartheid. So you, you can experience the uh, the phenomenon of it. I know that it's weird, but a lot of people's relationships, father to son, especially based weirdly on, on how they feel. They don't talk much, but they talk through <laughs> Peaky Blinders. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, a I, feeling I, yeah, thing. 
I, we're going to talk about the economics in a minute, but I, I was just trying to get a sense of, of, of feel like, so I remember watching the Cosby show as a kid in mid eighties. I'm in junior high, sure. high school. And it's you just, everyone watched it. There was no real question about whether you watched it. Everyone watched it. If something broke out, we talked about it the next day. Yeah. You had to watch it live. And it's the, this is the monoculture, right? You have a couple different options about what you can watch on TV at night. Period. Yeah. Uh, now you have infinite options, both TV and entertainment, et cetera. And so when does a breakout hit feel the same to you now? I mean, it's got to feel different because it's it's global versus domestic, but it's also mm-hmm. more dispersed. Not, you know, not everyone has to watch Peaky Blinders. Not everyone who listens to this podcast has even heard of Peaky Blinders. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get a sense of what it feels like to, to have both of those things in, in different eras. Well, it's hard to describe what a hit feels like. I've had a lot of them, and I know that um, it just means you've impacted culture somehow, and it makes you feel really good. It's more important than money. To artists too. So our, um, you know, our short-term gain, maybe you get some, maybe you don't. But as long as you know you've impacted culture positively in some way, then then you feel the hit, and it's a great feeling. And if ask any producer, they'll tell you the same thing. If they maybe some of them maybe some of them will say, "I got the money," but I think a goal would be to first uh, impact culture positively. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. So let's talk a bit about history and and money. So how did you get into the television business? Um, and again, you broke in at mm. a time when television culturally was not seen as important as, as, as movies, but no. it had huge, huge impact because there was so little choice and, and you were very successful very early on. How did you break in? Well, um, I was... I didn't wear a bra and I have lovely long brown hair. And I used to hang out in the halls of CBS and hope that a producer would discover me. That's the truth, by the way. But shortly afterward, I lucked out and met Marcy Carsey, who herself was a uh, an employee of uh, ABC, and then offered the job of president and then didn't get it. So they were very uh, worried that she would do a lot of business without them. So she hired me because I'd been, by that time, I'd been a very experienced producer. I worked for uh, Norman Lear and a sort of other things, and the only woman. So you you broke you you. Uh, I'm, I'm the bra status is important because initially you wanted to be an actress, <laughs> or because you wanted to break no, into producing? producer, producer For, from the get go. And producer means writer in television. No, pr- producer doesn't. No, very much. I was going to write a book called "What Does a Producer Do?" Okay, and it was, and I wasn't going to write it about me. I was going to write it about everybody, about Brian Grazier and about Harvey Weinstein and about. It's a obviously it's a word that needs to be defined. But in my case, initially, what a producer did was uh, basically what we would call line producer now. So we would say this is a, you hire a bunch of people, you add workman's comp on top, you pay taxes, and then you hire people. In my case, I looked at the TV and thought, well, that's really nice set design. You know, I'll hire that art director. So it's just basically a line producer production person, subsequent to which. Uh, and luckily for me, it was not that. It ended up being part of a, a team that uh, created IP. 
So the Cosby show was not created by Bill Cosby. It was based on his IP. Roseanne wasn't created by Roseanne. It was created by Marcy and I. We created that IP. Nurse Jackie's IP is um, the story of my goddaughter. I asked her to write a book. She wrote the book. I got it to a writer. So if you wait till something comes in over the transom, it's a bad business model. If you're properly an independent producer, you will look to see what's missing. And then you will make sure that you feel it yourself, that it's something you would watch and that it would move society in a way. I mean, that's that proper producing, you know, back to theater days. You break into producing, you get to work with Norman Lear. That's that's <laughs> a very fast ascent. So the economic model back then was this is deficit financing. So you and your partners uh, work with Bill Cosby or Roseanne Barr to create a show. You, you, you sell it to a network. And the network will not pay you all that you need. Whatever it is, they'll pay you 75 or 80%. They won't pay the rest. So you've got a deficit. And then uh, you own it, so the rest is profit. And then back in the day, the repeat model was 80-20. So it was 80% of uh, the money came from the U.S. and 20 came from the ROW, also known as the rest of the world. Subsequent to which that model has shifted and reversed. Mm -hmm. But that's what it was at the time. So you'd make a lot of money in the repeat market. Yeah, the, but the, the idea was you need to put together some of the money to make this show, even though ABC or NBC has bought it. Yes, you always have to go to the bank. Yep. And the bet is we're going to make a little bit of money when the show goes on the air. If it's a hit and it goes into multiple seasons and it eventually goes into syndication, mm -hmm. then there's a jackpot because when it goes into syndication, we own those rights People are paying us for the show that has already been produced. It's close to pure profit. And that's how you get very, very, very wealthy independent television producers for a period of time. It's why Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David are gazillionaires still because they were at the end of that era. And you were in the middle of that. You were in the yes. middle of 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 it's a lot. It's a, it's not quite a lottery. Right. But it's a bet. It's a because mo most shows you're not going to make a ton of money on one out of 10. You tell me one out of 20 is going to hit mm -hmm. that jackpot. We um, had a much so better success rate than that. Mm -hmm. You're very good at it. I named a bunch of those hits. And, and if you're a young person, you can go Google some of them. But these are giant <laughs> hits, giant culture defining hits. You guys all make a lot of money individually and as a company. And then at some point, the TV networks say, hey, <laughs> we'd like to change the model. Exactly. Well, just one day the law changed. We fought against it and failed. Uh, Marcy was a big supporter initially of the creation of independence. So Aaron Spelling uh, was a function of Marcy when she ran the network of saying, why don't we just hire him and have, have him set up his own company? And Susan and, and Paul and Tony, Susan Harris, who did the Golden Girls. Hey, Susan. Hey, Paul. Hey, Tony. Start your own company. So we were also happy days, you know, that was owned by Gary Marshall. So mm -hmm. you're, you, if you set yourself up, you only have one relationship, really. It's with the audience. And so we were, uh, because we loved it, whatever it was. So it created, you know, uh, happy days. It created Dynasty. It created The Cosby Show because we were indies and we didn't have to answer to any corporate diktats. And then it ended. So there was a structural reason why it existed. The networks were actually not allowed to own more than a certain percentage of their own shows. Yeah, 40, 40%. They weren't allowed. And then they were allowed to vertically integrate and they could own 100% of the product. And I do have a t-shirt that says, I survived 14 time slot moves, third rock from the sun. So they would use us to buttress their nascent efforts. 
So yeah, just to spell this out, they go from saying, all right, we're going to buy this show from Carsey Warner, Carsey Warner Manbach, um, to, you know what? We're just going to make our own show from NBC yeah. Studios, CBS yeah. Studios, and we'll still buy a show from somebody else if we have to. But we would like to make our own shows and produce our own shows so we keep all these profits instead of Karen keeping all our profits. Correct. And exactly. over time, that becomes the dominant model. 100%. So uh, I'm an extreme outlier because everyone else has taken a deal because they had to. So back in the day, they said there would be a firewall and they would make judgments based on the, you know, the efficacy of the proposition. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it was my show, they consider it. If it was their show, they consider it. But they'd consider it a little bit more strongly if it was their show. So the audience is the, is the, is the, at the end is suffering during that period of time where they had to teach themselves how to be content creators and content generators. Norman Lear was a good example. He was independent. And that model that shifted in television now sort of is replicating in streaming where Netflix and Disney and, and NBCU um, are all trying to sort of for different reasons, but the same result, they all want to own their own shows. They all want the global distribution rights. Mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. they will take a show from somebody else if they want to or have to, but their preference is that. And it, it makes economic sense. Um, is there a reason why it does or doesn't make creative sense to have the people who own the network own the show? There's a lot of talk about that in Hollywood right now, in the movie business in particular, uh, yeah, I think it does because the incentivization process, if you're just going to make bank, you know, that's cool. But if you don't get profit ahead of that, you're you're just doing it because you're good at your job. But there's nothing, the cultural implications are coming from above, from usually some sort of an algorithm that states, well, we must honor the 40 million newly minted Nigerians or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever the mandate is rather than from your heart and from, I think, the artistic expression. Killian Murphy is the most extraordinary, Steve Knight, the most extraordinary. You know, Steve's written 36 episodes all by himself. That's a lot of movies. That's 18 movies. But the goal of everyone involved, whether you're mm -hmm. you or a, a studio executive at Netflix or pick your, pick your streamer, pick your TV mm -hmm. network, they all want to make stuff they think is good and that more important than an audience responds to, why should it matter whether they're doing that as a Netflix employee or as an outside independent producer? Why would it matter to the, the output? I just heard Jason Blum speak really eloquently about this on another podcast. The imperative is, um, is different when you're incentivized financially to have a hit. You, you really feel like this must be a hit. You can't just go, well, this is just one of another bunch of stuff. A and B, mostly uh, hits come from uh, failures, from having had shitty experiences that <laughs> you can learn from. And so your rate, your hit rate's going to be better if you're more familiar with how to create stuff. It just is, that's all you do. You're not doing anything else. All you do, you're not worrying about the C-suites. You're doing nothing other than concentrating on this one thing. It does clear your head to be an independent. And I mean, historically, if you look at the feature business, the indies at their moment, it's cyclical, I'm sure. But how would, a, how would a Netflix person who's never produced anything know what I know, how many times I've been beaten up the head and neck? You know, it's, it's hard for them to know. They do have a learning curve and I, they're, they're great now. I think they do a wonderful job, really. But it just takes a little time. 
to be clear, the people who work at these at these, whether it's a streamer or a or a sort of older style media company, a lot of them have made stuff prior to working there and they make a lot of stuff there. But I, you said something that's interesting to me and a little counterintuitive, which is that because you are so financially incented to make this thing work that and you have a and you have fewer at bats that you're going to try harder and the result will be better than if you are part of an assembly line. Look, as an example, when whenever it was in the 80s or the early 90s, I was running the company and uh, Les Moonves was running Warner's. So Les Moonves had a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of TV shows. And he had one. I remember it was Full House in, in the top 10. I had three, one, two, and three. I don't think Les is, you know, forgetting his history or whatever. Uh, I don't think he's any more or less incentivized. It just is that he's not focused. He's not as focused as I am. He didn't get beaten up personally by uh, the you know vicissitudes of the of the business. He was in a corporation. We just were on the ground with these folks. It's hard for me because again, I was younger person when I watched a lot of the stuff. Yeah, shut up, rub it in, go on. We're we're all older now. When there were fewer outlets, when there was less stuff out there, do you think that stuff was better? than the sort of the average thing that's made today when there are many, many outlets trying to get my attention? Or do you think all that competition, uh, the fact that I can, I do have so many choices about what I spend my time doing in the evening, I don't even have to watch television to be entertained. Do you think that maybe it's better now because the, the bar is so much higher to grab my attention and to keep my attention than it was when there were literally three networks at one point and, you know, you really didn't have a choice? It's sort of like a ratings versus share question. It's that, you know, I don't know if the total available viewership or whatever is is changing. And I don't know that it matters. I think a hit is a rare thing. Let's look at the publishing industry, you know, ask them, are there, you know, are there more books? Are there more readers? I don't know. But a hit's really hard to find, especially a global one that appeals globally. So um, it's a question really for someone like George Lucas. It's hard to do, no matter how many at-bats you have, no how it's just really hard. So uh, whoever is doing it. You can go back and forth, right? Because people will, you know, depending on who's writing the history of Hollywood, they'll say, oh, you know, Jaws and Star Wars kind of ruined it because that's the first time everyone realized you could have these mega hits that would be in theaters forever and people would line up for and they only mm -hmm. wanted to make those afterwards. And that, you know, you can trace a line from that to, you know, Disney only making Marvel movies at this point. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, Star Wars is a pretty good movie. Jaws is a great movie, right? They were hits because people love them, not because That's they were right. forced to watch them. Um, and I can argue, you can argue it both ways on TV, right? The Cosby Show. Yeah. Those were very good television shows that people liked a lot of. And the fact that they didn't have choice didn't matter in that case. On the other hand, The Dukes of Hazard was not a good television show, was also a huge hit. And that just was because it was on television. Um, and then we can make the same arguments today. There's lots of crap that is successful. There's lots of stuff that is available to smaller audiences that the internet enables, right? Or they're not smaller, but they're global, right? You can, you can I, find- I don't know how to answer people. that. I just feel like uh, hits are hard to find. I mean, I, that, that would require like one of those Harvard Business School, you know, uh, test cases. And the only reason I'm rambling on about this, because I don't know the answer either, but you're someone who makes yeah. it. And so if your gut feeling, do you think- if you if you have to choose between making television entertainment in the mid '80s versus today, what do you, what do you want to do? Well, I think uh, versus today, 
I like the global personally. I moved, you know, I, I don't live in America anymore. So I just like the fact that I can be global. So I, I would choose global over uh, national. And so for that reason, I would be happy to live now. Yeah. Plus it's now. There's Plus it's now, now. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, was it that much fun in the 80s? Well, it was a little weird. It must be said. That's a whole separate subject. <laughs> yeah, we could do a whole, I mean. You could do, what was it like in the 80s with me, man? It'd be a lot of fun. In terms of what it's working conditions on sets in media companies, mm -hmm. have things improved? Are they better as if you're a woman, for instance? Yeah. I mean, it was really, I, I'm so stupid that I didn't know that people were out to get me. I just, I just, I was poly fucking Anna, pardon my French. I didn't get it. But obviously it's, it's culturally much easier here. Almost half the producers, the independent producers are women. Uh, the BBC's culture is insists on uh, extremely good behavior. You, you know, you, this is a, a very um, religious culture in that regard. You have to be responsible for your company in every possible way. Uh, I don't know about other company cultures, but mine, and I'm really proud of my company culture. It's my, it's an, it's a, an affect of, of my work and my previous suffering. <laughs> Let's imagine that you or I are a young person listening to this podcast and we like television and we want to get into the industry and we want to break through in 2022. What advice do you have for someone who wants to, who's starting out? How do you, how do you get to where you're at? Personally, I'd stick with independence, uh, even though it seems like a down economy, I think for, uh, Serial entrepreneurs, it's a good time. I'd get into Web3. I'd get into making a, um, a choice to be a part of the future. Uh, legacy media, interesting, wonderful. But if I was a young person, I'd want to be with entrepreneurs who are looking into the future and we're telling authentic stories. What's next for you? You, you have found this, this hit show. Um, it's had its run. You're trying to exploit in other things. At what point do you go, this is good, but I need to find another thing? Or do you go, no, no, I found the thing. I'm going to keep mining it. I'm going to keep finding this. I should not let this go because these are very rare. I do two things at once. I'm going to do both. I, I have a company, uh, in my opinion, the best in the business, both at product making and product design. Uh, so I live here in, um, uh, well, I live in the country, but if, uh, I wanted to go to Amsterdam, it'd take me, in, you know, an hour and a half, Paris, about an hour and a half, you know, you go an hour and a half away and you're in Reno. So I get to explore different, it's, wait, are you in New York? You're not in Reno. Yeah, no, I'm trying to fit, I can get to the Catskills and, well, not an hour and a half. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, honestly, I can get like a couple suburbs out of Brooklyn um, in an hour and a half. <laughs> so it's pretty I, slow. I, live in, I do live a global existence. You know, I've got a boat in Spain. I mean, this is as uh, idyllic a thing as possible. I speak Spanish. You have... Everyone in my company, one speaks French, one is Italian. You know, you have a, a global perspective. So the company is not just British. The company exists in, I think, a European stronghold. And so I want to develop in many languages and many cultures, because as I said, I'm culture agnostic. Karen, this is delightful. Um, Dude, I'm so glad I got to meet great. you. Thanks. You Come reached out. You said, I want to be on this show. I said, yeah, absolutely. I Come on. And, and the internet made it happen. It's great. Thank you, internet. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Jelani, for producing and editing the show. Thanks, Jelani. <laughs> thanks to you guys for listening and the sponsors for sponsoring it. Um, enjoy the rest of your holiday week if that's a holiday you are celebrating. See you next week.